Hello, listener. Thank you for joining us for this month's episode of the Garden Hose Podcast. Before we begin this episode, a few quick announcements. We will be hosting an Ask the Garden Hose webinar on May 14th from 11 a.m. until noon, Eastern Standard Time. If you would like to submit a garden or plant-related question or would like to register for the event, please go to go.umd.edu backslash askgardenhose. That's go.umd.edu backslash A-S-K-G-A-R-D-E-N-H-O-E-S. We hope to see you all there. And now to this month's episode. Hello, listener. Welcome to the University of Maryland Extension presents the Garden Hose Podcast, where we talk about getting down and dirty in your garden. We are your hosts. I'm Rachel. I'm Michaela. And I'm Emily. And today we're talking about hydrangeas, mulch, and spring lawn care. So I know we've talked about it a lot before, but the number one thing we want to mention about mulching is please do not subscribe to the volcano mulching, which is where you pile the mulch up against the trunk of the tree and it's kind of cone shaped or shaped like a volcano. So make sure you have plenty of space between the mulch and the tree trunk itself. Leave like a two inch moat around the tree trunk or the root flare. So you also want to mulch with a layer of about one to two inches tops to help protect those newly planted trees and shrubs. And there are many different kinds of mulches, but for the love of all that is green, please do not lay mulches like chipped rubber, unless it's for a playground or something like that. It's not meant for the landscape. Uh, Gravel, stone, and lava rock are some other inorganic options that people have, uh, but I would use them sparingly in the landscape. These mulches don't hold on to moisture, which is half of the reason to have mulch, and they tend to hold on to heat, which we don't really need in the heat of the summer, is to have more heat. Would those be good options for, say, like paths throughout your garden that you didn't want plants growing in? It might be a good option for paths, or if you you are trying to set up something around utilities where you don't have to mow or string trim around those utilities, those rocks might be an option. But I honestly, I don't recommend them for like a garden landscape, unless you're doing a rock garden, which is for cactus or or some plants that like that heat in that dry kind of environment. Like our native prickly pear? That's right. Although sandy soils would be a much better option for those those kinds of things. But these mulches don't hold on to moisture. They tend to hold heat. They don't contribute anything to the soil as well because they don't decompose And they usually require landscape fabrics, which are not decomposing either, to help keep the weeds down. I personally don't recommend using landscape fabric, but it is an option to people for weed control. I think eventually down the line, as the mulches decompose on top of the landscape fabric, that creates an environment where weeds can grow anyways. And so the the landscape fabric really doesn't do anything for you long term. And then you have to dig it up or you have to cut through it if you're trying to plant anything. I hate landscape fabric. The property that we bought has landscape fabric around everything. It's been four years and I'm still like digging it up in certain areas. 
it's just a complete and utter mess. It's horrible. I hate it. Now, if people wanted to put something down between their soil and the mulch, do you have something better to recommend? You know, there are some conflicting views on this, but using something that can decompose is the best option. A lot of people will use newspapers or some people use cardboard, but I've heard conflicting messages about using cardboard as it's not as easily broken down by the microbes in the soil, but it's still an organic option. It's probably preferable compared to the landscape fabric, if I'm being honest. Really using good mulches and replenishing those mulches year after year will be much more helpful for the soil. It may mean a few more weeds, but then down the road, you're saving yourself a lot of work of digging up that landscape fabric. So our preference for garden beds is to use organic mulches, and this includes bark or chipped bark, I should say, wood chips. Uh, some people use sawdust, but I think sawdust has a tendency to pull nitrogen out of the soil, much more so than wood chips. So I would avoid using that. And when you use those wood products, preferably they should be aged. And we'll talk about that in a second. But some of the other organic mulches are pine needles, even grass clippings. Although I hesitate to use grass clippings because that sometimes includes weeds, seed heads as well. Leaves are a great option and even straight compost. Compost is considered a mulch alternative as well. All of these products will decompose and add great organic matter into the soil, which if we remember from our talk with Nicole is, is a good thing. It's the best thing for the garden. I have a master gardener who uses pine cones for his mulch. You're the second person to have mentioned that to me in the last two weeks. Yeah. It's pretty effective for his garden. I don't know about the long term, if same thing with pine needles, if it will eventually change the pH, but it gives his gardens a really interesting look to them because you've got this kind of larger, bumpier type mulch over top instead of it. So it just, it gives it kind of an interesting look. I think the biggest issue would be acquiring a lot of them yep. in yeah. order to make a full kind of cover of it. So, so I might look for things that you can get pretty easily and pretty readily, depending on how much you need to mulch. I'm really glad that you brought up the pine needles affecting pH because it's actually been debunked. There's research that shows pine needles do not affect the pH. They do not acidify the soil. They just tend to be that where you have pine trees, it tends to be more acidic soil. So they really don't have quantities enough to influence that pH change. So pine needles are, are a safe mulch to use, though. They are inert, so they don't add anything to the pH or, or anything like that. I just learned something. One of the advantages to using the pine cones, like you mentioned, is someone told me they use it to keep cats from digging and pooing in their garden. Because, it, of course, they're kind of prickly, especially if you use the loblolly pine cones. So they'll be harder for the cats to dig into. So a lot of people ask about using wood chips from arborists and tree work. So many people ask about using wood chips that they get from arborists or other tree work. And again, I would use these with caution. Because the wood chips are fresh, they could cause some damage to your plants and trees by burning them through nitrogen deficiencies. Those fresh wood products tend to draw nitrogen out of the soil so they need to be cured first. And usually I say like 8 to 12 months of curing those wood chips before using them on the actual garden. But fresh chips are a great option for paths and areas where you're trying to suppress plant growth. 
So those might be a good option for you, especially if you're having a site where you're pulling out invasives or you're trying to compete with something that you don't want to grow. It may be something you want to lay down on top of that. So like all of your poison ivy or your English ivy? That's Well, and usually it's you're combining it with some other control method, like you're, you're cutting back or you're spraying the poison ivy and then you're, you're loading it with the fresh wood chips to try and kind of burn it off, so to speak. Wood chips can be used in a much thinner layer of like one to three inches, but lighter mulches like the pine needles or the leaves can be used in like two to three and a half inch layers. And that's because those materials are going to settle and they'll decompose much more quickly than the wood chips. But you also want to be mindful that wood mulches can harbor fungus that feed only on wood particles, so they aren't harmful to the plants, but they might look unsightly. And one of those is an example is dog vomit fungus, which looks exactly like the name implies. So I won't get into that in too much detail. It's pretty fascinating. And, and just as a reminder, it doesn't harm anything. It's just an opportunist on those wood fibers. And so you'll get that with a lot of the different wood mulches. I will say one of the reasons why you don't want a volcano, though, is because while these funguses don't hurt the tree or the plant, there are lots of insects that will use this mulch habitat to then burrow into them, particularly a lot of your burrowing insects will lay their eggs like right at that mulchy level and then the larvae will burrow into the tree and then come out and pupate in your mulch. So we more or less are avoiding those volcano trees because of insects more so than fungus. That's correct. So there's still a lot of research that is now reinforcing using mulch as the best way to amend soil without disturbing the soil, so without tilling or incorporating it. They're saying as it's preferable to use this kind of layering method to help amend the soils in place. So using quality mulches that will enrich the soil is your best long-term solution for better soils. And just like Nicole said, without healthy soils, we have nothing. Now, do you tend to put down some sort of mulch on your vegetable gardens as well, guys? Or do you just let those stay bare? That's a better question for Rachel because I don't vegetable garden very much. I use Sometimes I use straw as a mulch. I don't know if you recommend that, Rachel. Well, it kind of depends on how much work you want to do. I like to use mulch, but that's just my preference. If you would like something that's not, you know, robbing nitrogen, then I would suggest um, using a layer of newspaper with straw. I have just found it. In my garden, I have a huge squash bug problem, and they love those different, like, nooks and crannies of straw with newspaper. So that's the only reason that I use a different product, and I hate squash bugs. It's funny you say that because those are the biggest issues I have with vegetable gardening are squash bugs. So maybe that's why I'm using too much straw. Hydrangeas are some of the most dramatic blooms that are out there. They have these huge globular-shaped flowers that range in colors from bright blue, bright pink, to violet, white. And there's even some really cool ones that have like a light greenish color that I think are really amazing. So one question that I always get in the early spring is how do I go about pruning my hydrangeas? And how do I know whether or not I should prune my hydrangeas now or wait until later? And hydrangeas depending on the type either need to be pruned because they grow flowers on new growth so you want to prune them yeah. 
or the flowers come from the old growth and you want to wait and prune them until later in the summer. So ideally, if you know what type you have, you know whether or not you need to prune them now or wait until later. If you don't know, the safest thing to do is in the springtime is only prune dead wood. So go through and any stems that don't have buds forming on them or any stems that you scratch and aren't green underneath is considered dead and you can go ahead and prune those out. Again, if you don't know, better to be on the safe side because if you prune new wood out and you have the varieties that grow on new wood, you won't end up with any flowers this year. The old wood varieties tend to bloom later in the year, say around July, versus the new wood ones will tend to be blooming probably end of April, beginning of May as well. So if you take note this year, you'll have a better idea on how to prune for next year. You can also always prune out any dead flowers as well. That's always a safe bet. Good tip. You can find a lot of information about the various different types of varieties that you can get here in the Mid-Atlantic on the Home and Garden Information Center, but some really common ones that you'll come across will be things like big leaf hydrangeas. These are the ones that we kind of are the most common ones and the ones that the pH will change the color of the flowers. So if you have a pH below 6.5, you'll get a blue flower versus a higher pH will produce a bright pink flower. And a fun fact to realize is it's not so much the pH that's changing the color as much as the availability of aluminum. Aluminum is what actually causes the color to change. So by shifting the pH, you're allowing the plant to take up more or less aluminum. That's really cool. So if you love native plants like Michaela, there is also a native variety of hydrangeas, which is the smooth hydrangea. So you can check some native plant nurseries to see if they have any in stock. So our other good um, native one is the oak leaf hydrangea. And I would just like to all say collective sigh here because it is a beautiful, magnificent hydrangea that has these huge oak leaves. They're shaped like an oak leaf. And they have the most beautiful fall color. They turn almost like a ruby red in the leaf. It's just a statement plant to have in your yard and they are another one that cannot tolerate full sun they do like a morning sun shade afternoon kind of plant and they can get really tall so you really want to make sure that you're managing these plants effectively they can get about 10 feet tall at least the one that I had at my old residence did and then they have a smaller variety like a peewee oak leaf hydrangea that only gets like about four foot tall so they have different cultivars but the oak leaf is just a magnificent plant and it's not a mop head it's more cone shaped so it looks like you have a big snow cone they're beautiful flowers that probably get 12 to 18 inches long as a as a cone So the other variety of hydrangea that you can grow in this area is a climbing hydrangea. These are trained vine species that are fairly vigorous growers. They don't actually need that much pruning on them. So if you want hydrangeas but are hesitant about trying to figure out when do I prune and how do I prune, this might be a better option for you as well. They are beautiful, but they do need something pretty sturdy to anchor them. So if you're trying to grow them along a fence or... Or an arbor you want to that's probably not the best thing to have them growing on they need like a brick wall they have pretty hardy vines one of the other things i know that a lot of people are getting ready to start doing is mowing that lawn 
Now, I will say I hold off to mowing my lawn as long as I humanly can. I particularly like having all of those little weedy flowers because they're one of the few things that is in springtime bloom for all my bees, all the native bees and honeybees and bumblebees. So I like to leave them. Do you have any tips for people who are going to start mowing their lawn soon, Rachel? Oh, yeah. So actually, my husband started mowing our lawn in March. Not going to lie. Now, if I recall, your husband likes to cut he, the grass, though. He does love to mow the, mow the lawn. What blue-blooded American doesn't love to get on their zero-turn lawnmower <laughs> and, you know, spend hours of their Saturday or Sunday cutting the grass? So, if you're I, one of those people... It might people just be that, a guy thing. I think so. So, here are my tips. And I think I beat this drum every time we talk about lawn care. If you haven't sharpened your blades, please make sure you sharpen your blades. So you want to make sure that you're cutting your lawn at three to four inches high to have the best lawn health. Cut it high and let it lie. Never cut more than a third of a blade at each mowing. And if you remove large amounts of your leaf surface, it's like a shock to the system of that plant. It can cause excessive graying or browning of leaf tips, and it may curtail photosynthesis, re reducing the health of the grass. Also, if you cut at that three to four inches high, you can reduce weeds by about 50 to 80%. So that's huge. Nobody likes to have weeds. Cut it high, and then you can, you know, save your weed problem right there. I will say that if you are someone who has planning to go out of town, you may want to cut it a little shorter. And then even when you come back, if you are going to be removing more than that one third, it's better to do it in multiple times. So cut it and remove that one third and then give it like a few days and then go back and cut it another one. The thing I also notice with my push mower is if I cut it too much at a time, it chokes the mower and I spend way more time cleaning out underneath the mower than if I would just have cut less off. Yes, that's very, very true. And, you know, if you're doing a lot of low mowing, it also stresses out the root system of the plant. Turf that you're stressing becomes weaker and less drought tolerant. Yeah. And then it allows for more weeds to come in as well. So raising that mower height up to one half to one inch higher during the hot, dry periods of summer will help your grass maintain that drought tolerance. You also want to make sure that you do not mow your grass during the hottest, driest part of the summer. We have a cool season grass in our area, so if you're cutting it during, you know, the heat of July and August, you're just stressing that grass out. Now, Rachel, what's the benefit of letting my grass clippings just fall back on my lawn instead of, say, bagging them and using them for mulch or something like that? Well, that's a great question, Emily. If you cut it high and let it lie, you're actually giving your grass an added source of nitrogen. So then you don't have to fertilize. Which, hey, win-win. Yeah. The nice thing about here in the Mid-Atlantic as well is that our grass clippings tend to biodegrade fast enough that you don't have to worry about this building up like that deep thatch layer that you hear about in other states and yeah. areas, particularly up north. I would say, though, if your mower has got some like clumps in it and you're cleaning it out, you do want to rake that grass out. You don't want to lay leave like a huge clump of grass on your grass because that's going to turn yellow. So you want to make sure that you spread that part out. 
You can use fertilizers if you need, but it's best to take a soil sample first to determine yeah. if you really need them or not. And in Maryland, we're regulated by the Maryland Fertilizer Use Act, so we can only use 0.9 pounds per thousand square feet of nitrogen. So you really want to make sure that you're not overusing fertilizer and hurting our Chesapeake Bay. Fall is also the preferred time to seed a new long, but if you have to do it right now in May, you can. You can visit the Home and Garden Information Center's publication on fescue establishment for a low-maintenance site for more details if you're going to reseed. It's the Native Plants of the Month with Michaela. So my native plant for the month of May is blue flag iris or iris versicolor. And this is a lot different than the irises you might be familiar with, like the Siberian or other um, ornamental varieties. Our native iris may be a smaller flower, but it's a tough native perennial that has so many other great attributes. The color of the bloom is really impressive because like the name implies, it's this blue purple color and you don't often find that on things in nature or in a natural state. So the foliage is also very attractive. It has the broad fanning leaves that's very characteristic to the iris family, and they're almost like a blue-green color. Uh, but they also produce these large decorative seed pods. So after they're done blooming in May, you get this very interesting large pod for the rest of the summer. So what sets this iris apart from other ornamentals is that blue flag iris is the perfect flower for wet areas. It's able to withstand growing conditions where the roots are completely submerged in water. So we call those herbaceous emergence. It prefers flooded to moist soils, but it makes a great option for rain gardens, ditches, or those tough flooded areas in turf where it might be really difficult to grow grass. So you might opt to grow one of these instead. So it can also handle some brackish tidal marshes with a little bit of salinity or salt. So waterfront properties, this might be a good option for you. It needs full sun to bloom the best, so you want to look for sunny wet areas of the property that might be too tough to grow anything else in. It's a great option. It doesn't get more than like three feet tall, um, and the iris is actually a prolific seeder without being aggressive. So it's got many great attributes, and I recommend giving it a try if you have particularly wet soils. And if I haven't sold you enough on this native plant, the fact that they're deer resistant might be a good option for those of you who have deer problems. It's beautiful. It is. It's cool. Great choice. I like that one. It's pretty. And actually, it's gone crazy in our rain garden at work. I think I'm going to take cuttings and um, bring them home. <laughs> Get your tip of the month here with Rachel. If you didn't order your summer bulbs, go ahead and do it now. So our summer bulbs are things like gladiolus, elephant ear, begonias, cannas. Dahlias are my all-time favorite summer bulb. I usually start thinking about what dahlias I'm going to buy in January <laughs> and put those in order so that I can have them because a lot of cool varieties will actually go out of stock really quickly. So my favorite 
dahlia variety is called the Thomas Edison. It's a large dinner plate dahlia and it has this deep, almost amethyst purple flower Ooh, and it's huge. I mean, that sounds pretty. When you see them say dinner plate, they actually get as big as a normal dinner plate. So about eight to 10 inches in circumference. Um, I also love brown sugar, which is a ball variety. And when I say ball, it means that the flower is shaped like a ball and they're usually a little bit more erect. Um, and it's a medium-sized plant. It's not as big as the dinner plate dahlias because dinner plate usually get about 48 inches tall. They're pretty They're pretty big plants. Oh, cool. So the medium size is only going to be probably 24 to 36 inches tall. Mm-hmm. And then I really love the Cafe Olay variety as well. It's another dinner plate, but it's like a peach to almost light pink. So those are three of my favorite ones that I usually grow. So when I put the tubers in the ground in May, I automatically put in like a peony cage in the ground with them so that I can train the stems to come up through. Because if you don't, you're going to have a windstorm or a rainstorm come through and just knock them down and then you're going to be upset. So try to plan for, you know, two months ahead of time. And they usually start to really go blooming gangbusters by the end of July to mid-August. So that's when you can expect them to start blooming. So it's also a good time to prune any of your spring flowering evergreens like your azaleas, rhododendrons, so that they don't grow too large. And you want to remember to prune them after they bloom. If you prune them before they bloom, they're not going to bloom because you're going to cut off those blooms. So once they have stopped blooming is when you want to prune them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so if you have any um, vegetable transplants, you want to make sure that you're hardening them off. Mm -hmm. So that means you gradually set them out to get acclimated to our temperature and the fluctuation of how cold it can still get at night. If you just throw it out there, sink or swim, and we get a little bit of a chilly temperature around, you know, like May 10th, it might, it might not recover. So ticks are really active right now. And remember to wear light colored clothing. When you get in their habitat, you really want to make sure that you're checking yourself, your loved ones, your pets. And you can use repellents such as DEET to keep ticks away. Emily, do you have any quick tips about how to check yourself for ticks? Because you love ticks. <laughs> I do like ticks. I recommend that whenever you've been in a tick habitat, which is normally places like woods or in a tall grassy meadow, so you kind of want to check, particularly your hairline is always a place where they tend to migrate to as well as any place that your clothing had a seam. If you are someone who is inclined to sort of be in a tick habitat very often like I am, I recommend either buying permethrin treated clothing or buying some permethrin and treating your own. You do want to follow the safety label on it when you're applying it to your own clothes because there are certain safety protocols you want to do. Like you need to apply it outside and you want to be careful not to apply it around cats because it's highly toxic to cats. I was going to say you really want to make sure that if you are using permethrin and you do have pets, Mm -hmm. like Emily said, it's very toxic to, to cats. It will cause seizures and kill them. So if you love your furry friends like we do... 
make sure you're using that product safely. Once you've applied it to the clothing and it's dried, it's okay then? You can bring it inside mm-hmm. your house. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily like let your cat lay on it, but like it's not gonna kill your cat then. It's, it's really only toxic when it's like in that liquid form. Oh, so you can check the Home and Garden Information Center as well to see the proper way to remove a tick that's on you. But what we recommend is just getting a good pair of tweezers, grasping the tick as close as you can, and pulling straight out. Mm -hmm. You don't want to use Vaseline. You don't want to use liquid soap. You don't want to use a cotton ball with alcohol or a match. None of these methods are really effective at getting a tick out of you as well as just using a good pair of tweezers and pulling out. Once you have removed the tick, I'd stick it on a piece of clear tape, loop the tape over, and stick it in your freezer. In the event that that tick did have a pathogen, it's much easier for a lab to test it than it is for a lab to test all of you. Yes, that's very true. So we could do a whole episode just about ticks. We could. Ticks might be a bug of the month at some point, even though they're not technically an Mm -hmm. insect. Oh, yeah, that's right. So... If you are a vegetable gardener like me, then your peas are starting to ripen. You want to make sure you pick those pea pods when they're tender so that your plants keep producing. Worm season crops like tomatoes and peppers can be put out only after the danger of frost has passed. So that usually means around Mother's Day for us here on the eastern shore. You also really want to make sure that you pinch off tomato suckers to encourage larger, earlier fruit, especially if you're training one central stem. So there is a really great video on the HGIC YouTube channel. That's um, University of Maryland HGIC, if you search in YouTube. And I would like to explain what a tomato sucker is if you guys don't know. So you have the main stem of your tomato and then you have branches. They will actually put out side branches in between Mm -hmm. the main stem and the branch. And we call those suckers. And you can pick those off and it's not going to hurt the plant at all. And that way you're encouraging one main stem so it doesn't get too top heavy with fruit. Towards the end of May, your cool season crops like lettuce, broccoli, kale, and radishes may begin to bolt. This means it's gotten too hot outside for them and they're going to start to flower. If this happens, it's time to take those plants out to make room for more warm season crops. So you can put in a succession. More tomatoes. More tomatoes. Or squash. You can't ever have enough tomatoes. I think you can't ever have enough cucumbers so that you can make pickles. That's what I like to do. Uh So if this happens, it's time to remove them and make room for more warm season plants. So you can put in another batch of squash or cucumbers, tomatoes or peppers. That's that's all I have for tip of the month. What's buzzing? It's the bug of the month with Emily. This month's bug of the month is a bug that I think is really pretty, but it's a bad bug. This bug of the month's bug is the spotted lanternfly. This is an invasive insect that's native to Asia, specifically China, India, and Vietnam. It's a plant hopper. It was found in Pennsylvania in 2014, and it has now spread and is found in Delaware, New Jersey, Virginia, and two counties in Maryland, so Cecil and Hartford. I imagine by the end of this year, it will probably spread a little bit more. (laughs) 
it's a good size insect as an adult. It's about an inch in length. So you're going to notice this one. What's really pretty about it is that it has some very striking colors on it. So the front pair of wings are this gray tanny color with big spots. And think of it as like a Dalmatian. Like they're kind of mismanaged, scattered about spots. And then the very tip of the wings have kind of this brick-like pattern. The hind wings are bright red with black spots right next to the body or the abdomen, which is yellow. And then the very tips of the wings have big white and black bands. And we'll post a picture of this, or you can Google spotted lanternfly and take a look. It's a gorgeous looking insect. They are plant hoppers, so they're sap feeders. So they're going to feed on the, the phloem of particularly your woody plants. And while you may have an older established tree that can handle a few of these, these guys don't like to feed alone. And it's not like 10 of them. It's like a hundred of them. And you can find pictures of them up in Pennsylvania where people's entire trees are covered in these guys. And the major concern is not even so much with kind of our hardwood ornamental trees as much as them feeding on things like grapevines, hops, or fruit trees can really change the sugar content of the fruit. So they're not going to feed on like say an apple the way like the brown marmot stink bug did, but them feeding on the trunk of that tree is going to give that tree less sugar. So so things like wine grapes that need such a specific sugar content to make good wine, well, if the grapes aren't getting any sugar because this insect keeps taking all the sugar out, then you're, you're not going to be able to have good wine. And I think all of us right now really need good wine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so And again, the same thing comes up with if it's feeding on, say, an apple or a peach tree. If the plant can't get enough sugar to fully develop that fruit, it potentially could abort the fruit or the fruit may end up not being as sweet. So you've kind of got this major concern with regards to some of our agricultural crops mm -hmm. as well. So what you will not notice the adults, particularly this month, but what you will start to notice is the nymphs. So the nymphs, they're actually, again, they're kind of interesting looking nymphs. So the younger ones are gonna be all black, but they are gonna have white spots, but they're gonna be symmetrical. So think of like a dice or a domino. Mm -hmm. So two white spots on both sides and they're gonna match up. They're gonna be very symmetrical. Versus say something like some of our native stink bugs will be black with white spots, but they're gonna be a little more mismatched or they'll be straight down the middle. So think of these as being more domino dice-like. The oldest nymphs, um, will have that bright red mixed in as well. And when I mean bright red, I mean it's like fire truck. Like stop yeah, sign. Stop sign red's another good example. So some insects that are kind of lookalikes would be things like box elder bugs or some of our native stink bugs nymphs. Again, if you think you've come across these, feel free to snap a picture and send it to our Gmail, gardenhosepodcast at gmail.com. And what's highly recommended is if you think you have found it, is to contact the Maryland Department of Agriculture, or you can send it to don'tbug.md at marylandgovernment.com. And ideally, if you think you found one of these, collect it and kill it. So that's putting it in either a Ziploc bag in your freezer or in a vial of alcohol and making a note where you found it. Again, this is an invasive species. We do not want these in our environment. And why do you put it in the freezer instead of smushing it's it? It's easier to identify a bug that's not smushed. Okay, thanks. 
I mean, that's, that's, I know. <laughs> like, I have had people show up with bags of, like, smushed bugs with, like, a leg, and it's, it's a little hard to identify at times. Again, they're leaf hoppers, so they've got, they're sap feeders with a piercing sucking mouth. On top of them feeding on that sugar and taking the sugar away from the tree, you also have an increased chance of things like honeydew and sooty mold around that base of the tree, which could potentially yeah. lead to health issues from the tree from other funguses infecting the tree later on. And that will in return also attract things like ants and wasps, as well as other insects. What we do want people to be cautious of, and while we're all sort of in quarantine and can't go traveling, when this eventually gets lifted, I know a lot of people like to go up to Pennsylvania to look at fall foliage, or sometimes people come down to Maryland from there to go to the beach. These guys are notoriously good for hitchhiking. Um, they can get underneath the wheels of your car and lay eggs, or they can kind of fly in and then come down with you, and that's a number one way where these guys can kind of spread and get into new areas. So please always check your car if you go into an area that has these before you come home. Those are great tips because I know a lot of us go to Amish country or mm -hmm. the Poconos or, you know, all over Pennsylvania because it's so close. Um, again, you can, if you go on the MDA website, uh, you can see pictures of this and I'll, I'll link into that in the show notes. That's awesome. Thanks, Emily. Well, that's all we have for this month, listener. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. Again, if you have any garden-related questions, feel free to email us at thegardenhostpodcast at gmail.com, or you can always check the University of Maryland Home and Garden Information Center for all of their information about timely gardening tips. We know that this is an interesting time going on, and a lot of you are staying close to home and engaging in gardening as a great quarantine pandemic activity. So feel free to reach out to us with any questions you have. Thanks for listening and have fun getting down and dirty in your garden. Goodbye. For more information about the University of Maryland Extension and these topics, please check out the University of Maryland Extension Home and Garden Information Center website at extension.umd.edu backslash HGIC. Thanks for listening and have fun getting down and dirty in your garden. Garden Hose is brought to you by University of Maryland Extension. Michaela Boley, Senior Agent Associate for Talbot County for Horticulture. Rachel Rhodes, Agent Associate for Horticulture in Queen Anne's County. And Emily Zobel, Agriculture Agent in Dorchester County. So if you are stuck in your house and you want to go prune something, you can prune your boxwoods. You can prune your boxwoods all the way back to the ground. <laughs>